0: Life is full of awesome what ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com.
1: Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction. And free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at Burrow.com Acast. And up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at Burrow.com Acast. A 3D model that holds the key to a town's fiery downfall.
2: It was literally a scene out of some sci-fi movie. A terrifying
1: beast is on the loose in the wilds of the American West.
3: The animal has a monstrous look to it. It was feared and hated. And a movie star's sports car that carries with it a deadly
1: curse. If you drive this car, you'll be found dead in a week. I'm Don Wildman. Join me on a journey across the United States as we go deep into the vaults of the nation's most revered institutions, unearthing wondrous treasures from the past, extraordinary artifacts, and bizarre relics, each with a shocking story to tell and a secret to be revealed. These are the Mysteries at the Museum. Washington, D.C., America's capital city, is home to the most renowned law enforcement organization in the world, the Federal Bureau of Investigation. The paraphernalia and weaponry in its collection relate to some of the most infamous crimes in American history, and among them is one innocuous-looking artifact that seems out of place, a brownish-gray wool chauffeur's cap. But author Stephanie Shuro knows this is no ordinary headgear.
4: This hat was a symbol of the largest cash robbery to date in American history.
1: So who wore this hat? And what role did that person play in a notorious heist that confounded police for years? January 17th, 1950, Boston, Massachusetts. It's the end of a busy workday at the headquarters of the leading security company in the U.S., Brinks.
4: The Brinks company was often hired to deliver paychecks. We are dealing with it a time before computers when people were paid literally in cash. The company's name was synonymous with security.
1: On this fateful evening, five Brinks employees are hard at work counting cash when seven men. All wearing Halloween masks, Navy pea coats, and chauffeur's caps suddenly burst in. The robbers bind and gag the workers and begin grabbing bags of cash from the vault. The whole robbery took
4: maybe 15, 20 minutes.
1: Leaving the terrified employees tied up, the robbers flee the scene with over $2.5 million.
4: This was the largest armed robbery in American history. It was the equivalent of more than $20 million in today's money.
1: Once the crooks are gone, one of the employees frees himself and sets off the alarm. Investigators conduct a thorough search of the crime scene, hoping to unearth a vital clue that will reveal the identity of the robbers. But it seems that the thieves have covered their tracks.
4: The robbers wore gloves. They brought their own tape and adhesive But they made one potentially fatal mistake, and that is a chauffeur's hat was found at the scene.
1: The same hat that now resides at the FBI headquarters in Washington, D.C. Police visit every hat maker in the city, trying to get a lead on who might have purchased it, but to no avail. Leaving some investigators to conclude that far from being dropped by accident, the cap may have been left deliberately to taunt the authorities. Boston police amass a list of possible suspects. But after five years and still no concrete evidence, the investigation reaches a dead end.
4: They had a pretty good idea of who did it. What they couldn't do was get anybody to talk about the robbery.
1: And with the statute of limitations standing at six years, it looks like the thieves are about to get away with the perfect crime. Then police get a tip that one of their possible suspects has had a falling out with the rest of his
4: gang. One of the men suspected to participate in the Brinks robbery was a guy named James O'Keefe, known as Spex.
1: Because Spex O'Keefe is already in custody for an unrelated crime, the cops see a unique opportunity to try to get him to confess.
4: Specs, like everyone else, kept his mouth shut until he hit a point where he believed that he was being cut out of his fair share of the money.
1: Police convinced Specks that his disloyal cohorts are not worth spending life in prison for, especially after they've stolen his money.
4: And finally, just a few days before the statute of limitations would run out, Specks finally broke down and said, "Okay, what do you want to know? I'll tell you."
1: According to Specks, the plot had started a decade earlier with a notorious crook named Tony Pino.
4: Tony Pino was a master criminal in the Boston area. He was known as someone who could crack open a safe and nothing flat. He watched the Brinks for many months, and then one night decides that he's going to get in there. So he jimmies the door and manages to make his way through the entire building.
1: In the bowels of the building, Pino finds the counting room. Behind its locked door lies the vault. Then he does something that only a master safecracker would dare attempt.
4: He actually took the entire lock cylinder out of the door, took it to a locksmith, had the locksmith make a key for that entire cylinder. Then he went back to the building and reinstalled the cylinder.
1: With the key to the counting room in his possession, Tony assembles his gang and executes what appears to be the perfect heist. But the robbers' greed finally proves to be their downfall. The evidence provided by disaffected member Spex O'Keefe is enough to arrest and convict the remaining eight thieves.
4: Two of the robbers had died by the time that indictments were handed down. But the rest were sentenced to various degrees of life in prison.
1: But before investigators could put the case to bed, they had to know one thing. Why was the chauffeur's cap left at the scene of the crime.
4: Spex O'Keefe also solved the mystery of the chauffeur's cap. It fell off his head accidentally. It wasn't a sign of a master criminal. It was a total accident.
1: And today, at FBI headquarters in Washington, D.C., this chauffeur's cap serves as a reminder that no crime is perfect. The Lincoln mark that belonged to Elvis... President Lyndon B. Johnson's limo, and a Cadillac covered in pennies. These are just a few of the collectible cars housed at historic auto attractions in Roscoe, Illinois. But beyond the rows of polished, pristine wheels on display, there's also a car part here that has lost all its luster.
5: It looks more like a twisted scrap. It certainly seemed to be part of a larger piece and it obviously has had some
1: damage done to it. In fact, this warped fragment was pried from the wreckage of one of the most glamorous set of wheels ever made, a sporty convertible driven by a rising star of the silver screen. But is there any truth to the sinister story that harm befalls anyone who touches this infamous automobile?
5: Once you hear the story, I think it's very easy to believe
1: in it. Was James Dean's death car cursed? Hollywood, California, 1955. 24 year old James Dean is riding high. He's made three movies in a row East of Eden, Rebel Without a Cause, and Giant. But between shoots, Dean begins to spend more time pursuing another passion car racing.
5: James Dean, like a lot of actors in the mid 1950s and into the 60s, really had a fascination with speed. He was having some success as a race car driver. And ironically, it seems that he drives fast on the track, but, but really takes it a little bit easier when he is on the road. Take it easy driving. Uh, Dean like
1: even it. records That's a saying. public service announcement telling hey, like teens it's best to be careful and on the there. highways.
6: Now I drive on the highways and I'm uh, extra cautious.
1: But despite his own advice, Dean has just bought a wickedly fast speed machine, the Porsche 550 Spider, and he's eager to show it off to his friend, actor Alec Guinness. But when Guinness sees the Porsche, he is overcome by an indescribable feeling that this car is evil.
5: And Alec Guinness looks at James Dean and says... Promise me you'll never get in this car. If you drive this car, you'll be found dead in a
1: week. Exactly one week later, September 30th, James Dean is driving his new Porsche Spider to a car race in Salinas, California. Dean's mechanic, Rolf Wutherick, is his passenger. Dean and
5: Wutherick are driving west, And driving east is a college student named Donald
1: Turnipseed. Suddenly, Turnipseed takes a sharp turn, crossing into Dean's Lane to take a fork in the road. Dean says to Wutherick, he's
5: got to stop. He'll see us. And he turns right in front of them, and they virtually collide head on. Turnipseed later on says he never saw the Porsche at all.
1: The Porsche is annihilated. Dean's passenger, Wutherick, and the driver of the other vehicle, survive the accident. But James Dean is dead at only 24 years old. Is he just the victim of a tragic accident? Or could his friend's prophecy have been true? Is his car cursed? Fans of movie star James Dean are devastated by news of his tragic death behind the wheel of his Porsche Spider. But it comes as no surprise to his fellow actor and friend, Alec Guinness, who had warned Dean that there was something sinister about that silver convertible. Could Guinness have been right? Was James Dean's car jinxed? Right after the collision, our curse actually begins. Collectors and racers are eager to salvage any working pieces of the beloved star's now-infamous vehicle.
5: Parts of the car are purchased by two California physicians. The engine is still serviceable, and the transaxle is still serviceable.
1: The two doctors, Troy McHenry and William Eskrick, also racing enthusiasts, install the parts in their own cars. And in October 1956, enter the Pomona Road Race in L.A. County. One
5: of the doctors goes off the road, hits a tree, and dies. And the other doctor is involved in a collision and is severely injured.
1: Next to try to own a piece of the fateful auto is a car customizer named George Barris.
5: Well, George Barris, is not quite sure what he wants to do with it, but the California Highway Patrol persuades him to put it on display at various high schools around the state of California.
1: But as the car tours the state, strange coincidences and fatal accidents continue in its wake.
5: The Porsche is taken to a warehouse for safekeeping before its next display. In the middle of the night, the warehouse itself catches on fire. Everything's destroyed, except for the James Dean
1: vehicle. Later, the Porsche is on the back of a flatbed truck en route to Salinas, California, the same town where Dean was supposed to race the day he died.
5: The driver loses control of his truck. He is thrown from his vehicle. The James Dean Porsche rolls off the back of the truck, lands on the truck driver, and kills him.
1: For over four years, the car seems to haunt anyone who encounters it. Until one day, when, according to its last owner, Barris, the purportedly cursed automobile simply disappears. George Barris
5: is transporting the vehicle. The truck that the car is supposedly on arrives, but the car has mysteriously vanished. To this very day, nobody knows exactly where the car
1: is. But in 2006, this piece of James Dean's car comes up for sale at an auction. After the fragment is authenticated using a paint analysis, Historic Auto Attractions concludes it is genuine, buys the piece, and puts it on display. Fortunately, the museum staff has never had any adverse effects from owning this scrap. Whether the vehicle is truly cursed or not, its mystique
5: lives on. James Dean's whole persona kind of lends itself to a curse. He certainly lives up to kind of a 50s motto of live fast, die young.
1: And fans still come from far and wide to see one of the few remaining pieces of a notorious automobile that once belonged to a true Hollywood legend. Nestled in the majestic front range of Colorado's Rocky Mountains, sits Fort Carson, an army base that serves as the training ground for thousands of American soldiers and home to the 4th Infantry Division Museum. Here, weapons and uniforms salvaged from the battlefields of World War II and Vietnam are displayed alongside this peculiar item. Recovered from the desolate plains of Iraq.
6: The artifact is about two foot by two and a half feet. It's got two handles on it made of uh, cotton rope. It's kind of dirty.
1: And as Lieutenant Colonel Desmond Bailey can affirm, This bizarre object, fashioned from a block of polystyrene foam, was the key to unlocking the mystery surrounding one of the biggest manhunts in American military history.
6: It was literally a needle in a haystack hunt. It was challenging, but we persevered.
1: Iraq, December 2003. Eight months into the American-led invasion, coalition forces are struggling to keep the peace against the guerrillas of the Iraqi insurgency. As the fighting continues, the US Army is also scouring the country for the man they believe is at the helm of the violent opposition, deposed dictator Saddam Hussein. But in spite of their efforts, the
6: former president is nowhere to be found. The effort to capture Saddam Hussein was a continuous process. Numerous interviews with personnel affiliated with Saddam's party provide information that helps us identify his inner circle.
1: And on December 12th, the army captures a man they believe may hold the key to locating Saddam. His name is Mohammed Ibrahim, one of Hussein's bodyguards and a trusted confidant. And there's a huge break in the case when Ibrahim promises to lead U.S. troops to Saddam's hideout. The informant guides a special ops unit to a farm in northern Iraq. There, they rendezvous with Lieutenant Colonel Bailey's Gulf Troop 10th Cavalry. But a search of the property fails to turn up any trace of the notorious dictator.
6: Special operations forces had gone through several of the orchards and had found nothing.
1: Then, just as the troops are losing hope, Ibrahim points to a seemingly ordinary prayer mat
6: lying on the ground. If you pull that up, something goes through your mind, what might be underneath it. You have to be prepared for anything.
1: What is the significance of this tattered rug? And what is it hiding?
0: Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science. With beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Bombus, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase.
1: It's December 13th, 2003. U.S. military forces are searching for deposed dictator Saddam Hussein. An informant has led them to an orchard somewhere in northern Iraq where they find a prayer mat lying in the dirt. Is this finally the end of an eight month long manhunt? Or could it be a trap?
6: The uh, Special Operations Forces roll back the prayer mat, and what is exposed then are two cotton ropes sticking up. They don't know what it is.
1: What the soldiers find attached to the two cotton ropes is a block of polystyrene foam. The same object now on view at the 4th Infantry Division Museum. After carefully inspecting the item, the Special Ops troops prepare to move it.
6: At that point, the Special Operations soldiers pull the plug, discover that it is indeed a plug to uh, an underground area.
1: But who, or what, is hidden in this subterranean den? The soldiers are trained to clear underground rat holes of any potential threats. And troops are seconds away from throwing in a grenade when they see two hands
6: rising out of the hole. A man looks at the Special Operations soldiers and says, I am Saddam Hussein, the president of Iraq.
1: Without firing a single bullet, American forces capture a barely recognizable Saddam Hussein.
6: He certainly doesn't look like the president of Iraq that we had seen on uh, any news agency.
1: Beneath the foam plug is an eight-foot-deep underground lair in which Saddam has been living, a far cry from the palatial surroundings he enjoyed as president.
6: It did have an area big enough for Saddam to lay down. There was a light inside it, and he also had a pipe that extended out of the hole with a fan that would circulate air.
1: But Saddam is not living in complete squalor. Among his few possessions is another item also on display at the 4th Infantry Division Museum. This trunk filled with 750000 U.S. dollars. It's thought that the former president used this cash not only to facilitate his movement throughout the country, but also to help fund insurgent attacks on coalition forces. Nearly three years later, the ruthless dictator is brought to justice in an
6: Iraqi court. Saddam is trying for crimes against his own people by his own people. He's found guilty and hanged. With the death of Saddam Hussein,
1: nearly a quarter century of oppression passes with him. And this polystyrene block housed at the 4th Infantry Division Museum reminds visitors of the. US Army's role in bringing an end to one of the most fervent manhunts in history. Just south of Ennis, Montana, amidst vast mountains and flowing rivers, lies the Madison Valley. Here, the Madison Valley History Museum chronicles this area's rugged past. Amongst the relics of a bygone era are the preserved remains
3: of a long-dead and vicious creature. It's about four feet long, big teeth, big ears, dark brown with some striping going on. Over a century ago, this strange animal
1: terrorized settlers in the region, threatening their lives and livelihood. Don Kirby comes from a long line of Montana residents and knows the history of this frightful beast better than most.
3: When the animal was alive, there was fear, especially for your kids and your livestock. What is this mysterious
1: creature? And how did it earn its fearsome reputation? Madison Valley, 1886. It's the height of the Great Western Migration, and for pioneers everywhere, the fertile landscape of southwestern
3: Montana beckons. It is becoming populated with entrepreneurs that are looking for a fresh place that they can claim to be their own. Israel Hutchins is one such settler, who has chosen to build a life for
1: himself and his family in the area. But the valley's peaceful aura is about to be rent asunder. According to legend, one
3: winter morning, Israel is awoken by a horrific noise. It was a blood-curdling scream that would raise the hair on your back of your neck. He uh, heard a commotion out in the corral, so he uh, investigated. Israel rushes outside and is perplexed by what he sees, a bizarre
1: canine too big to be a wolf and too savage looking to be a dog,
3: is standing boldly before him. The animal has a monstrous look and acted differently than any predators they were used to seeing. And as soon as he uh, moved towards it, then it would savagely try to attack him. He's worried that it's going to be killing his livestock or his family. He takes a shot at it, misses, and hits a cow. The beast takes flight, leaving a frightened Israel
1: with one less cow in his herd. But Israel is not the only rancher to be troubled by the creature. Over the next few days, reports come in from across the county that the same mysterious animal is
3: slaughtering livestock. The attacks have been especially gruesome cows with their udders ripped out and left to die. Large kills where animals are maimed. These hideous losses have devastating effects on the area's farms and ranches. They haven't had this kind of kills. This is a
1: new phenomenon. So what is this mysterious beast that has been terrorizing settlers and killing livestock across the valley? For pioneers of the Old West, few things were more valuable than their livestock. So when a strange wolf-like creature starts killing cattle in a remote Montana Valley, villagers there have to take matters into their own hands. Madison Valley, 1886. Israel
3: Hutchins has made it his mission to free the valley from the tyranny of this ferocious animal. After that first sighting, he saw the beast again a month later, woke him again to the same sound, a commotion going on, and he went out to investigate. This is the moment Hutchins has been waiting for. He cocks back his rifle, takes aim, And with a single bullet, he kills the murderous creature. Everybody in the area was thrilled to hear that the animal was shot.
1: But the story doesn't end there. To celebrate the town's liberation from the talons of this weird animal, a local taxidermist named Joseph Sherwood buys the carcass, stuffs it, and puts it on display. And he also invents a name for the beast. Sherwood called the animal Ringdocus. But the mystery of Ringdocus remains. What exactly was this vicious creature? Almost 20 years after the beast was killed, Israel Hutchins' grandson, Ross, takes up the case.
3: Ross Hutchins was a naturalist, spent a lot of time and interest in species of different animals in the area. He analyzes every inch of the curious beast,
1: trying to determine its true identity. Although some people maintain the animal
3: is a mutant wolf, Ross thinks they're wrong. It was much larger than a typical wolf. And Ringdocus's back end is sloped more like a hyena. But as Ross carefully studies its attributes, he
1: finds it's not like any hyena that seems to be in existence.
3: His coloring is completely different. His fur is longer and coarser, different ears than a hyena would have. So Hutchins advances a theory that seems to account for all of Ringdokus's bizarre features. Ross Hutchins thought that there was a possibility that it was a hyena hybrid that maybe escaped from a, a circus. But the nearest circus would have been hundreds of miles away. It seems very unlikely that this was an animal that, that snuck away from the circus. Stumped, Hutchins
1: decides to compile a report and send it to the Smithsonian, then the world's largest museum and research institution, in the hopes that they will have an answer. But even zoologists at the world-renowned Smithsonian are baffled.
3: The Smithsonian was never able to classify what type of animal this was. What it truly is, I'm not sure we'll ever know. Today,
1: at the Madison Valley History Museum, the beast's taxidermied remains stand as a visceral reminder that there may still be mysterious creatures lurking in the wilds of the American West. Northeast Pennsylvania, the wealth and industry that once flowed from this region, has its source in a vital natural commodity, anthracite coal. And at the Anthracite Heritage Museum in Scranton, An array of relics traces this region's industrial history. But only one shows off the intricate maze of mining tunnels and shafts winding just beneath the Earth's surface. Made of intersecting sheets of colored acrylic and standing 38 inches high by 72 inches long, this three-dimensional model depicts the once booming mining town of Centralia.
2: The top map represents the location of homes, cemeteries, churches, whereas the model beneath it represents the different coal seams that are found beneath Centralia. According to
1: geologist and Centralia native Bob Godinsky, this curious model is also a roadmap to the causes of one of the most bizarre industrial accidents in American history, a tragic story he knows all too well.
2: It was literally a scene out of some sci-fi movie.
1: So what horrifying disaster befell this small Pennsylvania hamlet? And what happened to its citizens? February 14th, 1981. 12-year-old Todd Domboski is playing in his grandmother's yard when he notices something strange.
2: The ground in his grandmother's backyard was smoking. Intrigued,
1: Todd goes in for a closer look. It's a decision he immediately regrets as the ground opens up under his feet and swallows him. As he falls into what appears to be a massive sinkhole, he manages to grab hold of a tree root.
2: He was absolutely terrified. He couldn't even see down into the hole because of the large volumes of steam that were coming out of the hole.
1: Fortunately, Todd's cousin hears his cries, races over, and pulls him to safety. And it's not a moment too soon.
2: If Todd Domboski would have fallen, he would have slid 300 feet. But the
1: sinking crater that's nearly devoured Todd is just one of many that have sprung up around town. So what on earth is causing the ground to open up underneath Centralia? The story begins almost two decades earlier, May 27, 1962. As part of the preparation for Memorial Day, the municipal authorities plan a cleanup of the town.
2: The borough of Centralia would dispose of their garbage in an old open pit mine. Uh, And periodically, they would set it on fire. And as usual,
1: after the trash is burned, it is extinguished by the local fire department. Or so they think. A few days later a man notices smoke rising from the garbage pit and alerts the city. By the time firefighters arrive, it seems it's not just the trash that's burning. The garbage fire has apparently set ablaze an exposed vein of coal in
2: the pit. In the pit, you have a lot of coal residue. And this material can ignite, resulting in a fire. And the
1: abundance of this coal residue presents a huge problem. Although few mines are still active due to dwindling demand, the town's long mining history has left behind a vast network of abandoned tunnels and shafts, all lined with
2: highly combustible coal residue. As long as it has a fuel source, it will continue to spread.
1: And signs of the spreading inferno soon begin surfacing
2: all over town. After the garbage pit fire was ignited, smoke started encroaching upon the community.
1: Can authorities put out this mine fire? And what will happen if they can't? In northeastern Pennsylvania, an underground fire is spreading through the coal mines that run beneath the town of Centralia. What fiery fate awaits the 1,500 residents who are living above the blaze? After the fire was ignited on Memorial Day 1962, over the next decade, authorities make numerous attempts to put out the flames by digging trenches and filling the mine crevices with non-flammable material, such as wet sand and gravel. But nothing they do can stop this blaze that's fueled by the mine's apparently endless supply of coal residue.
2: Every time they tried it, it was totally ineffective.
1: Authorities reluctantly resign themselves to letting the mines burn, in the vain hope that they will be starved of oxygen and will burn out without doing too much harm. But little do they know that eventually this inferno will put both the town and its people in jeopardy. It's 1979, 17 years after the mine fire started. It's about to claim its first casualty a friend of Centralia native Bob Gandinsky.
2: One of my neighbors, his son came over in a panic and said, please come over and help us, my father is ill. It was later discovered that there were high levels of carbon monoxide found in his residence. Although the man
1: survives, it's clear that toxic gases from the mine fire are now seeping into people's homes, posing a real danger to the entire community.
2: These gases create a deadly atmosphere that could literally kill people very, very quickly. But that's not
1: the only consequence of the blaze. The underground fire has gotten so hot, reaching temperatures of 1,000 degrees Fahrenheit, that the ground itself is starting to disintegrate.
2: You have the major highway between Centralia and Ashland cave in. And
1: when 12-year-old Todd Domboski almost loses his life falling down a fiery sinkhole in 1981, fed-up residents decide they've had enough. National media converge on the town and the federal government gets involved. And after this model is built to convey the extent of the fire, officials are forced to confront the radical truth. Centralia is uninhabitable. In 1984, Congress takes a drastic measure to save the city's 1,500 residents by passing a bill that provides $42 million
2: to relocate them. That's when the demolition teams came in and began raising the homes in the community. More than 600 buildings
1: are demolished, leaving a ghost town in their place. Today, the mine continues to burn. And experts now believe that there is enough coal in its underground tunnels to feed the inferno for at least another century, making Centralia one of the most dangerous places on the planet. In nearby Scranton, Pennsylvania, at the Anthracite Heritage Museum, this model is one of the only memories left of a town that was both founded and destroyed by anthracite coal. Marion, Massachusetts. The Sipican Historical Society celebrates the proud nautical heritage of this quaint coastal city. But according to director Judith Rosby, the museum's most famous item is linked to an infamous tragedy at sea.
7: It's about two and a half feet in length, about two feet tall, and it's very authentic.
1: Made of wood and painted by hand, this is an exact scale replica of a 19th century sailing ship. Its name is synonymous forever with maritime mystery, the Mary Celeste.
7: People are drawn to the story of the Mary Celeste because it really is unsolvable.
1: It was a fateful voyage that came to a bizarre and puzzling end. So what is the story of the Mary Celeste? It's December 5th, 1872. The De Gracia, a cargo ship from New York, is sailing across the Atlantic under the command of Captain David Morehouse. It's about 400 miles off the coast of Portugal when all of a sudden, something peculiar appears on the horizon.
7: The captain looked out and saw a ship that was wandering aimlessly. Part of its sails had been blown out, so they decided that they would go closer.
1: But as he approaches, Morehouse recognizes the mystery vessel as a ship he's seen before. Its name is the Mary Celeste. The captain of the Mary Celeste is Benjamin Briggs, who happens to be a good friend of Captain Morehouse. In fact, the two seamen had even had dinner the night before the Mary Celeste left New York Harbor for Genoa, Italy, one month earlier.
7: Each one knew the other boat and where it was sailing.
1: And Morehouse also knows the Mary Celeste should have arrived at its destination by now. So what is it doing drifting listlessly in the middle of the Atlantic, one month after it departed for Europe? Captain Morehouse draws the De Gratia alongside to get a closer look. But as they approach the seemingly stricken ship, they fail to see any signs of life.
7: So the captain of the De Gracia sent three of his men over to see what was wrong with the Mary Celeste. When his first mate reaches the deck, he looks around, and no one's there.
1: Inexplicably, the ship is deserted. The captain and crew of the Mary Celeste are missing. Were they attacked by pirates and killed? The sailors of the De Gracia look for signs of a struggle... But everything is strangely in order.
7: It doesn't look as if any of the cargo has been disturbed. All of their possessions are still there. So they concluded very quickly that pirates weren't involved because they would have taken the cargo.
1: But then the mariners discover that something crucial is missing from the Mary Celeste, its lifeboat. For a sailor, this could mean only one thing.
7: It looked as if someone was afraid of something and that they abandoned ship in a very hurried manner.
1: But what could have forced Captain Briggs and his crew to abandon ship so suddenly? And where did they go? What would cause an entire crew of a cargo vessel sailing across the Atlantic to abandon ship in apparently calm seas? It seems bizarre, but that's exactly what happened in 1872 when the Mary Celeste was found deserted and drifting 400 miles off the coast of Portugal. So what happened to the crew of the Mary Celeste? In the immediate aftermath of the vessel's discovery, some people theorize that the passengers of the Mary Celeste were murdered by the very men who claimed to find their ship.
7: Some people have thought the crew of the Gracia had murdered everybody on board and were bringing the cargo in for the spoils.
1: But the Mary Celeste is returned to port, and when it's examined by maritime experts a few weeks later, this hypothesis is discredited.
7: They never found a murder weapon, they never found any blood, they never found any signs of struggle.
1: Today, perhaps the most likely explanation centers around the cargo carried within the Mary Celeste's hull. 1,700 barrels of industrial alcohol.
7: Alcohol was a flammable substance, and probably the most prevalent theory that has lasted through the ages was that the cargo was about ready to explode.
1: But is there evidence to support this theory? Although there were no burn marks on the ship, When her cargo was finally unloaded, nine of the barrels, though intact, were mysteriously empty.
7: What they discovered was that these nine barrels were made out of red oak, and that red oak is much more porous. And so all of that industrial alcohol had seeped through and had evaporated.
1: Some believe that under the right conditions, such a large buildup of alcohol vapors in a contained space could ignite causing an explosion. If this threat was detected on board the Mary Celeste, it would certainly explain what could have prompted the crew to abandon ship in a hurry.
7: We theorized that Captain Briggs thought that the boat was going to blow up. And so they immediately took the only lifeboat that they had.
1: Once in the lifeboat, the crew would have been able to watch from a safe distance, hopeful that the emergency would pass.
7: And we theorized that they tied themselves to the Peak Halyard thinking that they would wait it out, and if the ship didn't explode, that they would go back.
1: So if this is what happened, then why didn't the crew reboard the ship once the danger had passed?
7: That year was probably one of the worst years of storms in the Atlantic. Let's say the weather made a bad turn and the wind came up, the Mary Celeste took off. And there they were stranded as the Mary Celeste traveled another 400 miles away.
1: Creating a growing distance that the tiny lifeboat would be unable to bridge. Stranded without supplies in the middle of a stormy and unforgiving ocean, those in the lifeboat would likely have met their end. Currently, no theory definitively puts the mystery of the ghost ship to rest. What is certain is that misfortune followed the Mary Celeste throughout the rest of its existence.
7: Years later, it ran on a coral reef and sank and was never used again.
1: But at the Sipican Historical Society, this model of the Mary Celeste remains, a haunting memorial to a mysterious ship and its doomed crew. From ghost ships to cursed cars, a ravenous beast To a raging inferno. I'm Don Wildman, and these are the Mysteries at the Museum. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing.